0: Welcome back, choir. It's great to have you. Yeah. I'm uh, delighted today to be be starting a five week sermon series based on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus. We're going to be uh, going through it in these five parts. This is probably the last thing that Paul ever wrote. He's in jail, he's in Rome, he's waiting for his trial. When his trial comes up, he is convicted and executed. So these words that we're reading are very touching and very tender. He's thinking back to a time about 10 years earlier when he spent two and a half years in Ephesus founding this church. And so he's writing to them to give them some words of encouragement. And the, the, the words of encouragement are just as, as valid and relevant to our lives today as they were to them. So let's read here from uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, spiritual blessings in Christ, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, according to the purpose of him, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also who have heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless to our hearts and our minds this reading of his word. A little historical background on this letter, this text. The town of Ephesus was a major seaport uh, in the ancient world. Today it's seven miles from the ocean because the river silted up and the bay filled in with land. And so it's no longer on the ocean. It's inland, about seven miles. It was founded in the 12th century BC. In 336, Alexander the Great conquered it. Then it was ruled by the Romans and then by the Ottoman Empire. And today we call it uh, the country of Turkey. Many of you have been there and visited Ephesus um, because it's a a popular stop for cruise ships. And because in the 19th century, the British excavated the city and they found these perfectly preserved ruins. In fact, it's one of the the most famous Greek ruins in the world is the the town of Ephesus. They have a 27,000 seat amphitheater, 27,000 seats. And it still has perfect acoustics in it. They still have concerts in there today. They had a complete water system for 300,000 people. And above all, they had the grandest site in the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. Those of you that have been to Athens and seen the Parthenon, that's nothing. You could put two Parthenons inside the Temple of Artemis. It had 179 columns, only one is left standing. But it was giant, giant and people would come from all over the world to see this place also because of the gods. Artemis, who was originally called Diana, the Greek god Diana was renamed Artemis by the Romans. She was originally a hunting goddess, but she morphed into a fertility goddess. A fertility goddess. And uh, they, uh, she was uh, amply endowed with six breasts. Too many, I think. But... Um, but that's, that's how it was, and, and you could buy little statues of Artemis. It was a huge business, because people believed that if you could have one of these little statues of Artemis, well, if you wanted to have children, you could have children. If you needed healing, you could have healing. It was like magic to have one of these little little statues of Artemis. So people would come from all over the world to worship there and to buy these statues. Well, Paul spent two and a half years in Ephesus, longer than any other town that he lived in. Two and a half years there. And in the book of Acts, it says that he lectured in Tyrannus Hall, a hall owned by a man named Tyrannus, from 11 to 4. Now, those are the hours in which slaves were available. Slaves had to work in the morning uh, with their family. They had to work in the evening. But in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, from 11 to 4, they might have some free time. So they would go to this hall and Paul would lecture them and teach them about God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful that we have the book of Acts in addition to Paul's letter to the Ephesians because Acts, which is a history book written by Luke, tells the story of what happened when Paul went to each of these different cities. And the story that he tells of his visit to Ephesus is really amazing and dramatic. And so I'm going to read it to you. This is the description from the the Acts of the Apostles of what happened when Paul went to the city of Ephesus. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke out boldly and argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. When some stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way, that was the name of the church, the way. Spoke evil of the way, Before the congregation, he left them, taking the disciples with him, and he argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And then this amazing, dramatic thing happens. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver statues of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade, and he said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger not only to this trade of ours, that may come into dis- dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. In other words, this was big business, silversmithing and travel industry. The city was filled with, con- oh, it says, it says, and when they heard this, they were enraged and they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and people rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's travel companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some officials of the province of Asia, who were friendly to him, sent him a message urging him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. That's a good definition of a riot, isn't it? Most of the people have no idea what's going on. They don't even know. They just know that there's a lot of commotion going on there. Well, it worked out okay because a guy named Alexander came in there. He was a politician and he uh, calmed everybody down. He told uh, you know, Demetrius that he could go to court if he needed to. And Paul was able to escape with his life in this very, very dramatic situation in Ephesus. So fast forward, maybe 10 years, Paul is now in jail in Rome. And he's thinking back on that time that he had there with the Ephesians and the little church. And it was hard to be a Christian in those days. Not only were the Romans against them, but the the Jews in the synagogue were. They were small and they were persecuted. And he wants to write to them and let them know that he hasn't forgotten them. And he wants to encourage them. So he writes and he gives them some some beautiful words, encouragement, which which I find encouraging myself and I hope that you do as well. Let me read to you again one of the sentences because it's kind of hard to isolate them all. He wrote this. In the fullness of time, God will gather up all things in him. In the fullness of time, when when it's the right time, God is going to gather up everything in him. Do you realize what good news that is? Nothing will be lost. Nothing will be left behind. Nothing will be broken and unrepaired. That in the fullness of time, God will gather all things in him so that all will be healed. And, and those things that are broken will be fixed. It doesn't promise that every day of our life, the circumstances are going to be wonderful But the big picture at the end, you don't have to worry about, he's telling the Ephesians, because God has it under control. He has a plan for the fullness of time, and he will accomplish this. So when we look back, we can see what he has accomplished. And the two main things that Paul talks about, that we are given as a gift, are first of all, we have faith. He says that we have been given faith as a gift from God. Did you know that, that you're not responsible for your faith? That you didn't create it? You didn't make it up? You didn't decide it? That it was a gift from God? I remember the first time that I, I understood this in, in my own life. I uh, <clears throat> had a job for a magazine called The Wittenberg Door. It was a Christian magazine, and one of, part of my job was to interview, to do the interviews. There was a man that I really respected, his writing. His name was Richard Selzer. He was a doctor, but his writing was so, he would write about life, really, and it was so powerfully deep and spiritual that it was incredibly inspiring to me. And what was more amazing was that he was an atheist. And I, I decided I wanted to, to talk to him. And so I flew back, he, he taught at Yale University in the medical school, also taught in the English department, writing, which I thought was not fair to have both of those skills in one person, you know. um, But, uh, and I sat down and talked to him, and um, he said this in the interview. He said, My entire life has been one long search for faith. I haven't found it. I don't believe in God. Having said that, I want you to know that I love the idea of God. I love piety. Without it, you lead your life unmoored, In a state of isolation. You're a tiny speck in a vast universe. I'm jealous, frankly. I feel as though I've missed out on the greatest thing that can happen to a person faith in God. It must be wonderful. He went to church at Yale Chapel every Sunday in hopes that some Sunday God would find him and give him the gift of faith. I think I know what the problem was, though. I think Richard had an idea of faith that was not realistic. Being a scientist, a doctor, he thought that to have faith, you had to have everything figured out. You had to have uniform belief. Every little hole had to be fixed or every little thing, piece, you know, everything had to fit together perfectly in this little puzzle for you to claim that you had faith. But that's never been the Christian definition of faith. Our definition of faith has always had room for doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. In fact, someone said there's more faith in honest doubt than in all the creeds. In his book, Wishful Thinking, Frederick Buechner defines doubt this way. Whatever your faith is, that there is a God or that there is not a God... If you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Doubt is the ants in the pants. It's the thing which keeps your faith alive. We come from the wrong end when we say to ourselves, we have to work on faith. We've got to build more faith. It's not something that we work on or rebuild. It is a gift in God And it has always, always come with second thoughts, doubts, other kinds of things. And the second thing, bit of good news that was in this uh, particular passage we read, was the good news of our forgiveness. And not just forgiveness, uh, Paul says that we have been brought into the royal family, that we've been adopted. As God's sons, that we were adopted as God's sons. That's an amazing, amazing claim. In the ancient world, did you know that they didn't just adopt children, but that adults could be adopted? If you were an heir, if you were a Roman couple, let's say, and you had no children, it was fairly common for you to choose one of the slaves. Maybe the, the smartest one or the most responsible or the hardest working, working. And you could then adopt that slave to be your son, to be in your family. You'd call in the magistrate. They would have an official little ceremony that would happen. And boom, in an instant, that person went from being a slave to being a son. Everything changed in the moment of that adoption there. The entire world changed. The slave who previously was owned by the family and who owned nothing himself was now every heir to everything that the couple had. The slave who had spent his life serving others was now served by the other slaves. Everything changed when you were adopted into the family. Paul says that's what God has done for us that we've been adopted as sons with all the rights and responsibilities that go with that. Everything that Jesus has, we now have as well. Now, there's an interesting twist to this. Uh, The word, it says that we were adopted as sons, not as children. Uh, I read about a woman who was studying this passage, and she had been raised uh, in an old school traditional Chinese family. And she said that in in that family there was one son and there were several daughters and it was very clear to everyone that it was all about the son. It was all about the son. It was a patriarchal society. Most of the resources, the attention, the energy went toward the son. That's what it was all about. And she said that when she read this passage that she had been adopted by God as a son, she realized that her day as a second-class citizen was over, that she will now receive all the benefits that a son enjoys in a traditional culture, just like a traditional patriarchal culture that Paul was talking about, that now she had all the rights and privileges of a son. It's the highest honor that God could bestow on us. It's the greatest piece of good news. Paul says in him we have redemption the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. Our adoption means that we are loved like Christ is loved by God we're honored we matter greatly to God your circumstances cannot hinder or threaten that promise. Paul is not promising you better life circumstances He's promising you a far better life. He's promising a life of greatness and joy because you have been adopted into the royal family. He's promising a life of nobility and one that will never end because you now, like Jesus Christ, are a son of God. And that's good news. Amen.